So this week, we consider the Parsha of... We can't see you. So this week, uh, Eretz Yisrael is still uh, ahead of the curve. We have uh, Parshas Chukas. And the Parsha, of course, begins with the Para Aduma, with Chukas HaTorah. And there is a well-known comment of Rashi with regards to the Para Aduma, cited in the name of his Rebbe, Rabbi Moshe Adarshan. And that is that the Para Aduma comes as a kapara, as an atonement for the Chet for the golden calf. In the moshal that is presented, the parable or the, the, the allegory of a child who made a mess in the king's palace, so they said, let the mother come <coughs> and clean up the mess. That's the classic formula. If the child makes a mess, the mother should come and clean it up. I think uh, perhaps in our time the father would come also, although I can't guarantee that he would do much good. So similarly, you have the eagle, and that's the, the, um, the baby cow, that's the problem, and the paraduma is the mother, as a kapara, as an, an antidote. The problem, of course, with this comment of Rashi is very simple, and that is that Para Aduma is introduced by the Torah officially and in no uncertain terms as Chukas Torah. It is the Chok of the Torah. In fact, as Mepharshim point out, it's not even called the Chok of the Para. It's called the Chok of the Torah. It's almost the quintessential Chok, and a Chok, as we know, is a reason, a mitzvah whose reason is beyond us, that we don't know. And if that's the case... <coughs> then were Rashi to say that if you ask me the reason for para aduma, I will tell you that I don't know, we would be completely accepting of that. This is the one time when everyone gets a pass if you don't know. And on the contrary, if Rashi tells us that this is what the mitzvah is all about, we meet that with presumably some level of uh, wariness. So what is behind this comment of Rashi? It, it's almost by definition cannot be true, Rashi's a, a proposed explanation, because we have it on the highest authority that we don't know what the Pora Aduma is all about. In fact, even Shlomo HaMelech famously says in Koheles, in Perek Zion, Amarti Echkoma, I thought that I would be wise, Vehi I thought, as the Medrash explains, I thought that I would fathom the reason for Para Aduma, but it's beyond me. So even Shlomo doesn't know. It's just a shame. He could have looked in Rashi, and then he would have known. So what are we to make of this? The Chet Egel itself, if we put it into some type of historical perspective, we will see goes all the way back, literally to the beginning. By which we mean, <coughs> the Gemara states in Masechah Shabbos, Tafkuf Mem Zayin, that at the time of the original, what's called the original sin, that is to say, the Chet Eitz Hadas, the first sin, there was a certain type of, of impurity that entered into humankind. <coughs> Zuhama. 
And the Gemara says that at the time that our ancestors stood at Har Sinai, Paska Zuamasam, that impurity left them. But then, says the Gemara, when they made the Cheta Egel, when we made the Cheta Egel, it came back again. So this kind of a roller coaster, these ups and downs of, of a man starting on day one in a perfect state, and then he falls by the Chet Eitzadas, and then rises again at Har Sinai, and then falls again <coughs> at the Chet Egel. What's behind these ups and downs? It almost sounds like the Chet Egel, in its own way, was a redoing of the Chet Eitzadas. The original fall was re-experienced. But what have these two things got to do with each other? The Beis HaLevi explains, <clears throat> and he himself says that the basic principle is in earlier works, and indeed the Sefer Kuzari uh, speaks in this way, that if, if we would try and identify the, the root of the problem, which is a, of, of the, eighth, of the Cheta Egel, which is a mystery. After all, the Jewish people are on such a high level and somehow they capitulate or they, they deteriorate. <coughs> How can it be? Says the Beis Halevi, it can be traced back to their reaction to Moshe going missing. Namely, as true as it may be that in the absence of Moshe, presumably they'll need They'll need someone to fill Moshe's place. But how strange it is <coughs> that what they choose to fill Moshe's place is an eagle. Especially when we consider that they are in the company of Aaron. Aaron is the natural successor to Moshe. He's, he is the natural next choice. In fact, not only is Aaron the most likely person to be a leader after Moshe, Aaron was a leader of the Jewish people before Moshe. Uh, as, we, as we see from the Navi, from Sefer, from Sefer Shmuel, <coughs> Hashem appeared to Aaron in Mitzrayim, or the Navi Yechezkel, all those Navuas that were given to the Jewish people in, in Egypt were given through Aaron. So they already have experience with him as their leader. Now he stepped aside for Moshe, but if Moshe is gone, and you have these two choices, either Aaron or the Egel. So where does the drive come? From where does it come to choose the latter? <coughs> but the point it says, Beis Halevi, there exists within a person the compulsion, or there can exist within a person, the compulsion to chart their own path. That is to say, as much as they wish to succeed, but they will be the ones to map out the path for success. They are the ones who have the, the best idea as to, as to how they will succeed. And thus, we find a most amazing situation. Was Aaron in any way involved in the Cheta Egel? Yes. But amazingly, the opposite of what you'd think. <coughs> what the kosher response, quote unquote, to Moshe going missing would have been or should have been for the people to come to Moshe and, pardon me, to come to Aaron and say, Moshe has gone missing, what should we do now? Because Aaron is the de facto leader. But instead of coming to Aaron and saying, Moshe has gone missing, what should we do now? They, with a question, asking for guidance, 
they issued guidance, they issued directions and directives to Aaron, saying Moshe has gone missing, and therefore this is what we we want you to do now. And that was the beginning of the fall. So says Beis Halevi. And we need to appreciate that this compulsion did not originate with the Jewish people. This problem did not start with the Jewish people at that time. It is literally as old as man itself. Because according to many Mepharshim, this is exactly, or likewise, was what was behind <coughs> the Chet Eitzadas with Adam and Chava. Moshe has received explicit, pardon me, Adam and Chava have received explicit instructions from Hashem not to eat from that tree. But somehow they end up doing so. And, and how can it be? I mean, they, 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 do they wish to, to do the wrong thing? After all, Adam is considered to be on an extraordinarily high spiritual level. How can he do the wrong thing? And that is why <coughs> the Arizal explains that the only way to understand how Adam and Chava could have done the wrong thing is that they did the wrong thing for the right reasons. In other words, their will and their desire is ultimately to do the right thing. But the wrong decision <coughs> is how to go about that. And, wh- and what, is, what is behind it? So briefly, to, just to get a, uh, what we could call a working understanding of the Eitz Hadas. After all, the Eitz Hadas itself is a mystery in the sense that if you eat from the tree, it helps you know the difference between good and evil. That's good to know. That's important knowledge, especially if you wish to do good and avoid evil. You have to be able to know the difference between them. So how can it be wrong to eat from the tree that gives you that knowledge? <coughs> and each of the Mepharshim, of the Rishonim, in their own way, explain that even before eating from that tree, Adam and Chava knew what to do and what to avoid. The way the Rambam says it, for example, their choices were not between good and evil, but between true and false. That is to say, whatever Hashem told them to do was true in the sense that it was obviously the right thing to do. And what, what Hashem told them not to do is obviously false, meaning nothing will come of it. So why, why get involved? <coughs> the changing of the metric from true to false to good and evil is that now there could be a perceived benefit from doing the wrong thing. It's still morally wrong, but there's, it has a certain appeal that it never had before. And that is a result of eating from the Eitz Hadas. It's no longer true and false. They're both true. Just one is true moral and one is true immoral. And that should be avoided. But they didn't avoid it. Why not? <coughs> because, says the Arizal, to choose between true and false is easier than to choose between good and evil. And if man's divine service ultimately is based on the faculty of free will and exercising his free will, so the more he needs to exercise it, the greater the achievement will be and the greater glory ultimately to Hashem for having listened to his word. And therefore, if they enter this new frame, this new 
way of looking at things between good and evil, which makes it harder to choose good and reject evil, and nonetheless they succeed in choosing good over evil, well, how much, how much covered will that give to Hashem? Now, there is a problem, and that is Hashem has told you not to eat from the tree. That's a problem. <clears throat> but here enters the faculty of man, which allows him to think that he knows better than Hashem, even in terms of what serves Hashem's own interests, which actually, on paper, sounds ludicrous, but in practice, it happens the whole time. And <coughs> this then was the Avera Lishma. The Beis HaLevi says something very interesting. There's so much when Hashem appears to Adam and says, What did you do? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Which is a very interesting way of referring to that tree. He doesn't say, Did you eat from the, from the tree of knowledge? He says, Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Why does he refer to it in that way? And Beis Halevi says, and this can explain so much of how people work. Hashem is telling, he's helping Adam. In other words, looking back, you probably can't believe or imagine what possessed you to eat from the tree. I'll tell you and remember it for future occasions. It's because I told you not to. That then produced a, a compulsion. Somehow you have a better way to, to do well and to succeed in life, even in spiritual life. And this is the state of man as a result of that fall. And moreover, the punishment, or one of the punishments for eating with Neitzadas, as we know, <coughs> is most tamus, is that it brings death into the world. And to say it delicately, but we need to appreciate that this is not just, quote-unquote, a punishment. Death as a result of eating from the Itzadas is not just a punishment. In a sense, it's a natural progression because eating from the Itzadas represents seceding, departing from the full connection with Hashem as the source of life. And where does that lead a person if not to death? And this is how things remain until Harsinai. We come back to the Gemara, which says, and we can see this is a real historical sweep. I mean, it's from the beginning of history, fast forward <coughs> two and a half millennia, approximately. And here are the Jewish people at Harsinai. And the Gemara, as we quoted above, said, the impurity of the Eitz Hadas left them at that time. What, what, is, what does this signify? Or what, is it, what, what signals this? Our finest hour, as we know, is when we said Na'asevenishma at Harsinai. And as we've mentioned on numerous occasions, Na'asevenishma, we will do and we will hear reflect a complete commitment because you can't really do anything before you've heard. You don't know what to do. So to say we will do before, before you say we will hear means we accept to do even before hearing. We can appreciate that, that aspiring and attaining on some level that madrega <coughs> allowed the Jewish people to, to free themselves from the impurity of the Eitz We can see how one is the antidote for the other. If the Eitz is the compulsion to chart our own path, regardless of what Hashem may have said. And Nasev says, we, we go in blind with what Hashem says. 
That's an absolute connection. That's a fundamental recovery from the Eitz Hadas. But with that in mind, we further understand how the Gemara says, but at the time of the Egel, it left again. It meant that it wasn't a full recovery. We could call it a significant recovery or a fundamental recovery, but it wasn't a full recovery because within the course of those few weeks, in the absence of Moshe, we again fell prey to that compulsion to chart our own path. Aaron is there, but he's only there to receive orders, not to give instructions. And we can now appreciate <coughs> how the impurity of the Nachash came back because the, in this respect, the Cheta Egel was effectively a redoing of the Cheta Etzadas. And there's a very interesting pasuk. We say it's in the Shir Shalyom for Tuesday, tomorrow morning. Well, for those who, st- who say Shir Shalyom and Rosh Chodesh, the, the weekly, Aniyamarti Elohimet Atem, this is Hashem talking. I said or I, that you would be Elohim, you would be like angels, Uvnei Elyon Kulchem, and like those of on high. Says the Medrash, that refers to Har Sinai. The Jewish people could have been significantly or fundamentally free of Malach Hamavis, of the angel of death, had they only stayed at the level of Har Sinai. And now we understand why. Because death came in by choosing the root of the Eitz Hadas. But coming back to connect with Hashem through Nasev and Ishma, so you, you can be free of death to whatever extent uh, they were. <coughs> that was the thought. Aniyamarti Elohim Atem, which should say Elohim with a hake, it refers to like Malachim and the like. But it didn't end up that way. What does the next Pasuk say? Achain. Indeed, however, <coughs> you'll die like Adam. The normal translation or the simple translation is that you'll die like man. But the Medrash says it's, Adam is not just given as an example of someone who died. I mean, it doesn't really need examples. But Adam to Musun means you'll die like Adam Harishon died. And for the very same reason, because you repeated his mistake. And once again, going for the Eitz Hadas approach or trail, which led you away from the source of life, and, and pray once again to, to, the, to the venom of the, of the, of the Eitz Hadas <coughs> and all of those consequences. So with this in mind, Achar Hadvarim Ha'ele, and it really, it's, it's such a, a, a major statement to put it against the relief of this historical backdrop. We come back to Rashi's comment, who says that the para aduma is a kapara, is an, is a, an atonement for the cheto egel. Our question was, well, that's a, it's impossible to suggest that. It's, by definition, it can't you. You can't know. We don't know why we do the para aduma. It's called a chok. So how can you then say that it comes as a kapara for the cheto egel? <coughs> Says the Beis Halevi, this is one of those questions where the question is the answer. In other words, if the question is, how can you say it's a kapara for the egel, para aduma? If, if it's a chok and you don't, we don't know why we do it, says the Beis Halevi, it's true. We don't know why we do it. And that's the kapara for the Cheta Egel. In other words, the Cheta Egel had the Jewish people placing their own decision-making and their own uh, judgment faculties at the center so that what, how should they proceed? How they see fit. The notion of a chok is an absolute uh, antithesis to that. 
Because a chok says, well, you have no idea. But, but in Cheta Egel mindset, there's no room for a chok. Because if I don't see how it's good for me, why on earth should I do it? So to embrace a chok <coughs> of which Para Aduma represents, that's why Rashi says it's a kapara for the Cheta Egel. Because to embrace the mitzvah, even if we don't know why, so why do we do it? Because as Hashem said, it's got to be, be for our ultimate benefit. I mean, that's the thinking behind a chok. And that is a kapara for the, for the Cheta Egel. And it's worthwhile contemplating this idea because para adumas, as we have them, are few and far between. I understand every, every once in a while, one of them looks like it's, it's born and it's in the ready and, and uh, hopefully one, one day soon we'll have them. They get a lot of attention, these para adumas. I personally think that would give you gray hairs just being looked at in that way. But either way, <coughs> pending the para aduma itself, there's so many other areas in, in mitzvahs and in halacha where this concept is applicable because every mitzvah really has its, its para aduma elements to it. Every mitzvah has its, its boundaries, its specific parameters, its details. And one could certainly intellectually embrace the mitzvah but not necessarily have that specific map of how the particular uh, details look. So where do they come from? Very often for us, they're a chok. So our relationship really with every mitzvah can, can gain a lot by the para aduma approach. And all of that, of course, should serve only to link us and connect us fur- further to the Eitzachayim and Emir uh, Hashem through that Naseh Nishma approach to get us closer to, to Harsinai until we reach that ultimate Madrega again for keeps. So these are uh, some very pertinent uh, thoughts and comments with regards to the opening of Chukas with reference to the Para Aduma. Needless to say, as we move on into the Parsha, and there's so much in the Parsha, it's almost unfair that there's anything in the Parsha other than the Para Aduma and the Meimariva, the hitting of the rock, because things tend to uh, get pushed to the side. But uh, either way, we will talk about the, the Meimariva and hopefully have time for one or two other things as well. <coughs> and so Meimariva, the episode of the rock, which is in Perik Kaf of our Parsha, and in fact there's a massive gulf time-wise because the beginning of Parsha's Chukas is yet in the first year or two. But then the next thing we know, the next thing we hear about is in actually in year 40, which is Meimariva and... That's in Perak Kaf. Well, as we mentioned many times, there are numerous explanations of what exactly happened. The Torah is not absolutely explicit in terms of what the problem was. It describes many times, it characterizes what the problem was with with terms like, you didn't sanctify me, you didn't believe in me, you, you misappropriated and you disobeyed. These are things that are said to Moshe later on. But what exactly was the problem? The Pasuk itself seemingly doesn't specify, which has led the Chida to coin the phrase, They are the Meimariva, the waters of contention, because there's a massive machlokus between the Mepharshim to understand exactly what the problem was. Either way, <coughs> the approach that, that I would like to uh, ponder together and consider together for a few moments is that of Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel 
who lived in the ten hundreds, and he was a contemporary in a sense, a slightly younger than Rashi, but similar to Rashi in the sense that he wrote a parish on the Torah and on the Gemara. And we have his parish on the Gemara, a number of Masechtas, his parish on the Torah existed here and there. It's been since been put together from all the places that he's quoted, but extremely influential uh, Rishon, both in terms of his explanations and also in terms of his the Nuschaos, the, the versions of, of Gemaras that he had uh, as he comments on them. <clears throat> and, and the way to introduce, just to get our, our footing here, is really to begin with Rashi or, or perhaps the, what we would call the common understanding of the problem of what went wrong, what went wrong with the Mimariva, and to build out from there. I call it Rashi. The truth is Rashi has his own uh, particular uh, comments. In some respects, Rashi is the most difficult uh, of all of the uh, explanations of Mimariva. But certainly what we'd call the mainstream approach is that Moshe was told to hit the, uh, to speak to the rock, but he didn't. He hit the rock. And that was that. Was that. In one sentence, that, that's the problem. But this, of course, leads to a number of questions. And not that there are no answers to that questions, but these are the questions that therefore uh, prompt other Rishonim to look in other directions. Uh, firstly, Hashem tells Moshe to take the staff. I mean, that's actually the first thing he's told to do. Kach esamate, take the staff. Why is Moshe told to take the staff? If the last thing he's meant to do is to use it, why is the first thing he's meant he's told to do to take it? That's that's a difficulty. <clears throat> and even with the approach itself, if if it's so decisive that Moshe has specifically has to speak to the rock and not to hit the rock, so why did he hit the rock? What what would cause Moshe to deviate and make such a grave error? Additionally, we have to ask, it's a Balabatisha question, but, but what is the difference between speaking to the rock and hitting the rock? Why is one out, an outstanding result and the other is, is a disaster? I mean, they're on, the, on the grander scale of things, they're both miracles. And in fact, to bolster this final question, <coughs> we also note that this is not the first time that Moshe has been told or gets water from the rock. In the end of Parshas Beshalach, it's a less celebrated episode, but at the end of, in a place called Maso Mariva, so there is a rock there, and the Jewish people are, are thirsty for water, and Hashem tells Moshe, take your staff, hit the rock, and water will come out. And apparently that was, that was com- completely acceptable. So we know, we have on record, at least earlier, that this was completely fine. So, so why does what was the way forward in Parshas Bishalach become the worst possible thing to do in, in, in Parshas Chukas? I mean, what, what will have changed? And these are the, the essence of the questions that, that need to be asked concerning that, that mainstream approach, that the problem is that Moshe was meant to have spoken to the rock, but he hit the rock. And all of this, we could say, is background to or introducing conceptually the commentary of Rabbeinu Hanana. And <coughs> he has his own chidushim. We'll need to uh, broaden our perspective a little bit with regards to a couple of Loshan HaKodesh points, but that's fine. 
The first thing you need to know, says Rabbeinu Hananel, is that when Hashem told Moshe to get water from the rock, it was to be done through hitting the rock. That's how it's meant to happen. That's how it happened way back when, in Parshas Bishalach. And there's no reason why that's, that shouldn't be the way that it happens now. Nothing's changed. And for that purpose, Hashem told him to take the staff. He's not setting him up, so to speak. He's telling him, he's equipping him because he's going to need the, he's going to need the staff. So what went wrong? So if we have a look at the, at the psukim here, in Perik Kaf, Perik Kaf Pasuk Ches. <coughs> so there's two specific points which will open up for us this parsha. So again, Kaches Hamate, Perik Kaf Pasuk Ches. Hashem says, take the staff, again for Rabbeinu Hanano, because you'll need it, and gather the, the congregation, you and Aaron, now that's black and white, in other words, the Pasuk says, speak to the rock, it will give its water. How can Rabbeinu Hanano say that Moshe is meant to hit the rock? The Torah seems to be very directly saying, speak to the rock. Says Rabbeinu Hanano, no. When you talk about Ledaber El, and he brings numerous examples from Tanakh, Ledaber El generally means to speak to something. But Ledaber also can mean to speak about something. Ledaber El means to speak about. Moses is told, take the rock and speak about the rock to the people. What does it mean to speak about it? What are you going to say about it? Prepare the people for the miracle that's about to come. They need an orientation. They need to be told about it because that will increase the miracle. It shouldn't be a spontaneous act that they had no preparation for and all of a sudden there's water and no one knows where it came from. Tell them what's going to happen. And what's that called? Vedibartem el hasela. Speak concerning the rock. And Ramban concurs with that reading of Vedibartem el hasela. And this is why <coughs> when... Moshe and Aaron do gather the people in Pasuk Yud, Vayakilu Moshe Aaron Esakahal, Al They gather them together. And what do they say? Listen now, ye Morim, whatever Morim means, ye rebels. Hamin From this rock we will bring forth water. What is the purpose of those words? What are they doing? Says Rebbeinu Hananel, this is Moshe fulfilling Hashem's instruction. Speak to them about the rock. Tell them what's going to happen. And that's what Moshe did. And, and the second reading point of Rebbeinu Hananel is that when it says, Hamin the hay at the beginning, which again often denotes uh, an, a rhetorical question. Shall it be? but can also denote an emphasis on something. Again, he brings psukim. If we know Tanakh the way he does, it will all corroborate for us perfectly. But we have to learn each of the psukim. Hashem says to Eli, the hay at the beginning is used for emphasis. And what Moshe is doing, he's not questioning, he's emphasizing. From this rock, we will bring forth water. So far, everything seems in place. He was told to take the staff. He's going to use it. Good. He's told to speak to the people about what's going to happen, and he does. Good. So what's not good? Where did it go wrong? Says Rabbeinu Hananel, the problem 
was in one word, or more correctly, in one letter. And that is go back to Pasuk And this is the point where we realize that sometimes it's easier to be us than to be Moshe Rabin. Vayomer, <coughs> the end of Pasuk Yud, Listen, you rebels, Haminazel Hazer, from, again, for Rabbi Nechadala, it's emphasis. From this very rock, we will bring forth water. Notzi is the first person plural. We will bring forth water, says Rabbi Nechadala. That's the problem. Because the truth is that the only one and of course, we, we can understand that what it means is that practically it will be Moshe and Aaron. But the force behind the whole thing, obviously, is Hashem. It can't be anyone else. So we understand why Moshe will say, we. It's a joint venture, so to speak, with Moshe representing the practicalities. But says Rabbi Nechananel, if the goal is to introduce a miracle, the emphasis cannot be on anyone other than the source of the miracle, capital S. And that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, what Moshe should have said, this is Rabbi Nechananel talking, what Moshe should have said is, Hashem will take this out. He will do so through the agency of Moshe and Aaron, that may well be. But it's only Hashem ultimately to have prevented any possibility of misunderstanding. That was the problem. Notzi versus Yotzi. And says Rabbeinu Hanana, with this in mind, we understand why all of the criticisms, and again, there's three or four of them now. There'll be two in our parsha, one in Pinchas, and one in Ha'azinu. Because whenever Hashem will tell Moshe he's not going into the land, he will reiterate why and describe in, a slight, in each one in a slightly different way what went wrong with the main Meriva. And he will, in our parsha, he says, Yan lo tembi. That's, that's straight away in Pasuk Yud Beis. And lo he'emantebi doesn't mean that you didn't believe, but lo he'emantem, you didn't promote belief in me because you left room for that misunderstanding. That's called lo he'emantebi. And what's fascinating is, <coughs> again, one of the places where Hashem speaks to Moshe about this, mamash before the end, is Parshas Hazinu. And there he says, Hashem me'altembi. Me'altem. Mem ayin lamed. Me'ila. That's how Hashem describes the, the, the problem on that occasion. Me'ila. What is me'ila? Where do, we, where do we know this term from? If we're familiar with it, it's the concept of taking something that's holy and diverting it for personal benefit. That's called me'ila. There's a Masechta of Mishnaya called me'ila. There's an Isser in the Torah called me'ila. To use something that's consecrated and holy and divert it for personal benefit. <coughs> Says Rabbeinu Hananel, now we understand why these, of all things, what Moshe did at the, at the rock was called me'ila. Because by Instead of saying Yotzi, ascribing the miracle 100% unequivocally and unambiguously to Hashem alone, by using Notzi to give the notion that Moshe was somehow involved more 
than, than perhaps he was as the source of the miracle, that's Me'ila. That's, that's ascribing some of that miracle power or give it, at least allowing it to be misunderstood in that way. That's why it's called Me'ila. At the end of the day, more than anything else, and perhaps this is the only thing for Rabbeinu Hanano, the problem is how Moshe expressed himself at that time. And what's interesting is the tour. And as we mentioned not long ago, the tour, in addition to the Balhaturim comments of Gematrias and, and so on, and Masoras, <coughs> he also has a Perush, al Hapshat, the Perush HaTur. And the tour says, e- evidence and support for Rabbeinu Hananel will come from David HaMelech in Tehillim. Because this is another of those occasions where you have a posuk in Tehillim which describes in its way what happened. We go back to Perik Kufvav, which we actually had a look at a couple of weeks ago in Parsha Shalach. It's one of those psukim that goes through those formative historical events. And in Perik Kufvav, Pasuk Lamed Beis, Lamed Beis and Lamed Gimel, it talks about Meimariva. And these are the psukim. You can take a look. Perik Kuf Vav, Pasuk Lamed Beis and Lamed Gimel, just to have that as the reference. Here they come. The first Pasuk. Vayaktsifu al Meimariva. They, meaning the Jewish people, angered concerning Meimariva, which, which, as we know, is the case. Uh, the Jewish people were contentious and complaining, and that's really what, what, what set about uh, the negative responses. We should not forget, as much as all focus in this Parsha is on where Moshe went wrong, to the extent that we can understand it and are able to talk about it, as much as that's the focus, we shouldn't forget that the Torah's own parting words, and the Torah doesn't spare Moshe any criticism, but the Torah's own parting words is to say, and these are the Meimariva, Asheravu b'nei Yisrael es Hashem. The enduring thing to recall is that the Jewish people were contentious with Moshe and by extension with Hashem. That's where the place got its name from. The place didn't get its name from Moshe's mistake. The place has got its name from, from the people's uh, misbehavior. It's also important. And it's especially important because if we are always looking to, or should be looking, to examine these episodes in the Chumash in terms of lessons to learn from them, we're statistically much more likely to be in the group called the Jewish people than we are in the group called Moshe Rabbeinu. And if, if they made a mistake, we want to have a, have a think about that also. Because we don't want to avoid Moshe's mistake that we couldn't really have any chance of making anyway and fall straight into the mistake of the Jewish people, which is where the place got its name from. Vayaktsifu ame meriva. They, they angered Ketsef, they angered Hashem at Meimariva, or they angered Moshe, Vayerala Moshe Ba'avuram. And it, it ended up badly for Moshe on account of them. It did. Moshe was denied going into the land of Israel. That's the first pasuk. The Jewish people angered, it worked, went badly for Moshe. Second pasuk. Ki himru es rucho, because they rebelled against his spirit. Vayivate bisvasav. And he uttered with his lips. That's it. So the Jewish people acted contrary to Moshe's spirit. And and he uttered with his lips. That's the end 
of, of this description. But what does that tell you, says the Torah? That the problem with Moshe is something that he said. It's, compl- it's the exact opposite of, of how we normally think. <laughs> we thought, on the contrary, halavai that he would have said something. He was meant to say, speak to the rock, but he hid it instead. But you see from Tehillim that the Pasuk identifies the problem. It doesn't say what he says, but the problem isn't something that he did say, not, not in what he did, says, says the Torah. That fits in very well with Rabbeinu Hanana. That it's about <coughs> the way he spoke. Notzi lachem versus yotzi lachem. And this perhaps can explain to us maybe just one final thing, and that is why Aaron is punished. That's a big mystery also. The whole thing is a mystery, but uh, a, a mystery within a mystery is, is why Aaron is punished. After all, Moshe is the only one who's acting here. Aaron didn't do anything, and they're punished equally. And ironically, Aaron actually passes away before Moshe. He was older, but uh, if they're both implicated in the sin. But, but how is Aaron implicated in something that, that Moshe did? But if we understand that the problem is the, potent, the, the, the misuse of the phraseology of notzilachem, if Aaron and Moshe are there and Moshe says, we will bring it out, and that's considered to be problematic, then that's something that, that perhaps Aaron was expected to, to correct Moshe on. It's not a something that Moshe did that, that Aaron had no control over. It's something that Moshe said that maybe Aaron should have, should have indeed uh, corrected him. So these are... Again, very, very rarefied levels. <coughs> and and uh, through, the, through the medium of the Mepharshim, we're doing our best to try and get a sense of uh, what it is that happened as, as related by the Psukim and uh, how to understand the whole thing. Well, we've worked uh, quite a bit in Parshanut so far. And I'd like to conclude by in presenting a most unusual comment from Rav Kook, Zatzal. And it is based on a Pasuk which is itself quite unusual. There's this certain Pasukim towards the end of Chukas. This is in Perik Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Yud Dalit. Certain Pasukim which are rather enigmatic, which need to be opened up. <coughs> so Perik Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Yud Dalit. Al-Kenyi Yomar Hashem. Therefore, let it be said, obviously, we're, we're queuing in uh, to the Pasuk that we need. What is Sefer Muhammad Hashem? The Book of Wars of Hashem. The Pasuk doesn't explicate. Es vahev basufa. Es hanechalim known. I read the words. I'm not on this occasion going to try and translate them. Depending on who you ask, the translation will be significantly different. But to focus on the words es vahev basufa. Because there is a fascinating account in the Gemara. I think it's actually quite well known. Nachale Arnon. It's in the Gemara in Maseches Brachos. In the beginning of the ninth parak, Daf Nunhei Ahmed Beis. And there, the ninth parak of Brachos discusses if you see certain places where major miracles happen to the Jewish people, there's a bracha to make. And one of the places mentioned, some of the places, like we see where the Jewish people cross through the Yamsuf and so on and so forth. And if you see Nachale Arnon, if you see that valley, that stream of Arnon, you also make a bracha. And the Gemara elaborates as to what happened there. <coughs> that is, 
And we'll see how it relates to the words es vahev besufa in just a moment. But the background as, pre- as presented by the Gemara is that as the Jewish people were headed towards Eretz Canaan, they were to pass through a valley. And on either side of the valley, so the Amori, the Amorites, who uh, saw the Jewish people coming, so they thought this is their time to take action and prevent it from happening. And the way they did that is they laid an ambush for the Jewish people. They hid, there were caves up on either side. The Jewish people are down below in this uh, ravine or this valley. And <coughs> on either side you have these, these caves and the Amorim are there with their arrows and their missiles and whatever it is that they wish to attack the Jewish people with. However, what the Amori did not take into account and this is yet, yet still the Gemara, Rashi quotes it in brief, actually, on the uh, Pasuk Tesvav, is that the Jewish people are following the Aron. Now, the Aron levels things before them in order to give them smooth passage, which means that as much as you have this very mountainous uh, terrain on either side, but the Aron actually had the effect of leveling everything, bringing the whole thing together until it was a level surface. Now, part of what that meant was it brought the caves together on either side. Those caves had belligerent Amoris in them. But they all got crushed and all of their designs to ambush the Jewish people in the end came to nothing. What's further fascinating about this is that the Jewish people actually had no idea that any of this was happening. They were completely oblivious to all of this for the simple reason that they were literally in the clouds. That is to say, they were surrounded by the Anani HaKavod. So as far as they're concerned, they are dutifully and faithfully following the Aron. They don't know what's happening before them. They don't know which, what terrain has been leveled for them. And they never would have known. They would have just proceeded uh, absolutely ignorant of this amazing miracle that had occurred, had occurred to them. But in the end, they found out. And the reason is for two people. There were two individuals who were outside the clouds of glory, and their names were S and Vahev. Back to our three words in Pasuk Yudalit, S, Vahev, Besufa. S and Vahev were at the end What does that mean that they were at the end? (coughs) Meaning they were trailing behind the camp. Why? Because they were thrown out of the clouds of glory on account of being Mitzorahim. If you're a Mitzorah, you you have to leave the camp of Machana Yisrael, which which meant outside the the clouds of glory. So the bad news was they're outside the clouds of glory. The good news was they were then able, as the whole camp passed by and then the ground opened up again and things reverted to their original uh, topographical state, they then saw all these caves, they put two and two together, they realized what they'd been spared from. And actually, the Gemara says that they came and informed their brethren inside the Ananiha covered just to let them know. It's an amazing situation where the, the only two people who had that information were these two Mitzraim called S and Vahev. They were the ones who were giving the, to, to, to give the good, uh, the Besorah Tova to the rest of the Jewish people. Says the Gemara, again, this is, it's a halachic discussion. Therefore, if you see Nachali Arnon, you should know to make a bracha. Says Rav Kook, what's it all about? In addition to the story itself, what what is happening here? 
And Rav Kuk is inclined, this is in his Chidushia Godus, Einaya, to Maseches Brochus, and he is inclined to understand that whatever happens to the Jewish people as in the Chumash, as they're just about to enter the land of Canaan, is in its own way a Maseh Ovos of sorts for, for the Jewish people as they will re-enter towards the, the time of the, of the final Geula. So circumstances as they are described are also uh, a template, in a sense, for things that will be re-experienced. But what does it mean? Who are the, who are the Amoris? And we're not in the clouds of glory anymore. And what's with these two Mitzarai? So he begins by talking about the concept of Tsaras. Obviously, someone who, who, who is a Mitzarai, he's thrown out of, of town because he's not really relating to things or people as he should. And he really needs to be isolated till he gets himself together. There's something dysfunctional about a mitzvah, and he needs, to, he needs to, to, to work on himself a little bit. <coughs> es and Vahev are the names of these two mitzvahim. They're very interesting names. Uh, even in our times where names proliferate, I, I, I haven't really seen that many S's or Vahevs. It didn't take on. But what's the meaning behind these names? Says Rav Kook. The two most meaningful areas in life for a person are their acquisition of wisdom and their acquisition of relationships. The things that a person can really hold on to as part of themselves are the, are the, the wisdom they've acquired and the relationships that they've acquired. And both of these are processes. Both of these require investment. The name for wisdom, or the name for truth in the Torah, is emes. Aleph, mem, taf. What's denoted by that? <coughs> Aleph is the beginning. Taf is the end. And what's in the middle? There's a process in the middle. The letter mem, which the Gemara in Masech Shabbos and Daf Kuf Dalet says mem, refers to ma'amar, sayings, ideas. And moreover, the Gemara says there's two types of mem. Some mems are open, some mems are closed. Because some ideas are easily accessible and others really need to be opened up. They're, 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 they're sealed. But it's through grappling with them and it's through contemplating them and through reflecting on them and through meditating on them that a person is able to get from Aleph to Taf. It's through the process which is called, and it doesn't happen overnight. And that's why a person who has truly acquired wisdom is someone who's gone the distance, who's invested what needs to be invested, who's been uh, dedicated, persistent, and consistent. And that person has emes. The mem in the middle got it from Aleph to Taf. <coughs> the same is true with regards to relationships with others says Rav Kook. The, the, the Hebrew word for love, of which relationships are made, is, is ahava. And ahava is an interesting word. Because again, if you look at the beginning and the end, it starts with an aleph and ends with a hey. Because it's something that can increase. From aleph to hey, it can increase fivefold. But, but where does that increase come from? It comes from what's in the middle. And what's in the middle is, are the two letters hey and base. Hav means to give. 
like we say in Tehillim, Havu, Havu Lashem Bnei Elim. Also, Moshe says in Chumash Devarim, Havu, Havu Mikem, etc. Havu means to give, to render, to give over. <coughs> so, what 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 brings a relationship from from one to five, from Aleph to Hey, is have, is to give. It doesn't happen straight away. It's a process. And there you have it. MS and Ahava are the, the formula for success in these two areas. And then you have two dysfunctional people who are called Mitzoroi. And they're not really part of this program. And they're called S and Vahev. Who are they? What do they represent? Says Rav Cook, what is S? S is MS with nothing in between the beginning and the end. It's just Aleph and Taf. In other words, there's no sense of a process. All you have, as soon as you've said Aleph, you're already looking for Taf. Meaning I've started, I must, I must, why am I not finished already? Because it's a lack of awareness of what needs to be invested. There is no Mem. Just, I started with Aleph, take me straight to Taf. That's a Metzora approach to something important. And what about uh, Vahev? Who is he? Says Rav Cook. <coughs> Vahev is the same approach with regards to Ava. For, for when we looked at the word Ava, we saw it starts with Aleph, ends with Hey. Starts with one, ends with five. But you need have in the middle. You need give in the middle to get you there. But what if a person doesn't want to give? What if a person uh, doesn't want to wait? He's impatient and, and he wants as, as high as it can go straight away. So he takes the Aleph at the beginning and the He at the end and, and wraps them all up together. That's where the Vav comes from. I mean, Vav is six, it's one and five. In other words, he looks at the word Ava, he takes the He at the end, piles on top of the Aleph, and then you have your, your Vav. And in fact, the giving gets pushed to, gets pushed to the end and he may never even get there. He's looking for, looking for the payoff straight away. That's a Mitzorah. And these people are outside the Machada. And that, says Rav Kook, if you're outside the Machada, you're prey to a lot of very destructive forces because your, your wisdom is not wisdom and your relationships are not relationships. And the only people who are protected from this, not that their existence is problem-free, but, but if they follow the Oran, the Oran levels these things for them. And actually, the irony is they don't know what they're being protected from. They don't know what dangers existed that were, that were being circumvented by them or avoided by them. <clears throat> they need to be told by the Mitzorayim, who come in from the cold, so to speak, to tell them about it. And says Rav Kook, this will happen again. It will happen again as the Jewish people are re-entering the land. There will be, and, and really what he's describing, I think... Uh, in our time, more than any other time, and the and the the further we go, the more it's true, is really this lack of of sense of process for anything that's important in both of these areas. Everything is considered to be uh, if it's if it's worthwhile, they should be able to do it quickly, and 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 the and the quicker the better. Everyone's impatient. Everyone wants to wants to be an expert already. Wants to have acquired wisdom and meaningful uh, connections. Uh, instantly. And that's really the mistake of, of S and Vahev. And they're not really following the Oron who understand that there's Hav in, in the middle of Ava and there's a Mem in the middle of Emes and, and, and it takes a while. 
And I think part of the reason why is because so many other areas of life, if things are, are computed quickly or done quickly, it's a sign of success. I mean, that really is the, the way that things are sold, that they can do such and such, you know, in, in such a short amount of time. And these devices have become de facto role models for success in every area of life. But the, but the human factor, which is the only factor that remains <laughs> with us, doesn't rate success in that way. And we lose if, if we don't realize that. <clears throat> and certainly, uh, you know, we're living in times where people are, are wondering more and more, what do I have that, that a machine doesn't have? And, and where is uh, success for me if, if I'm out, outstripped uh, so many times over by something which is the, 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 the size of a thimble? And <clears throat> here, this is really the Nisoyan of this time. And that's the message from, from S and Vahev, that, that S should be MS and Vahev should be Ava. And uh, it's an unlikely place to, to draw out such a profound message for our times. But that's how Rav Kook explains, as the, as the Jewish people re-enter the land of, of Israel, things that are, are, are important deserve the time that they need and shouldn't be hurried in that way. We've mentioned, I think, uh, in the past, although we finished the Omer count for this year, but it's an amazing mitzvah to, 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 to get us to Har Sinai. It's, a, it's such a simple thing to count from 1 to 49 over the course of seven weeks. And yet, it contains a profound idea for us. No one ever defines successfully counting the Omer as doing the whole thing at once, even though it's not that hard to count from 1 to 49 in less than 49 seconds. But everyone realizes, but that's not what the mitzvah is. It takes time. Every day is another increment in the mitzvah. But it can't be done in a day. But you also can't miss a day. What a path towards Harsinai. What a path towards receiving the Torah. Because if you've trailed up to Harsinai with a counting consciousness where you realize that what, what is waiting for the other side is important enough that it can't be done in one day, but you can't miss a day. So then you're ready to receive the Torah. That's the chinuch that we get from Sviyasa Omer. So this is the very, very uh, wonderful comment of Rav Kook. It's certainly much uh, food for thought. And uh, between the Para Aduma and the Meimariva and Es and Vahev, Parsha Schukas, uh, certainly has much to, to get us thinking. We'll leave it over there for this evening. Uh, wish you all a good night, a good chodesh. Have a wonderful month ahead of Mitzvah Shem. All the very best.